First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12 is our text for this morning. Uh, but I want to read for us 6 through 12. We'll, we'll get our main point in just a moment. But look at, starting at verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you uh, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, again, we say thank you. We ask you, teach us in your word. God, God, we're here because we want to please you. We're here because we want the joy of experiencing your grace and your glory. We're here in obedience to your command. And we just ask you, Lord, please have mercy on us. And show us your glory and show us your grace and change us so that you be magnified in us and so that we get to have our souls satisfied in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. When life is hard, when things are tough, it can be a big help to us to remember the goodness of God, right? Throughout biblical history, the people of God have been called to remember the grace of God and the goodness of God so that they can face troubles. You ever do that? You ever, when you're in the middle of a hard situation, remember where God has been good in case you're wondering about it right now? Two of you, maybe? Okay. Thanks. This is going to go well today. Instagram, now. The start of this. Jacob, um, oh, that's fun. My phone's talking to me. Uh, don't text me, by the way. I'm using my phone to record things, so please don't do that. <laughs> Jacob, remember, he was traveling through the desert. He camped out one night, and God showed up. And Jacob's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know God was even here, and now I've seen the Lord. And he set up a stone as a pillar to remember it. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, he set up a, a stone to remind the people of how good God had been to them. He named that stone Ebenezer, by the way, in case you ever wonder where that word comes from in the old hymn. But he did that. He set a stone up just so that the people of Israel could remember how faithful God had been to them. (coughs) And the Psalms often start by recounting the goodness (coughs) and the faithfulness of God as reasons why you and I should be confident in the future. God's been good in the past so we can trust him for the days to come. But the idea of remembering your blessings so that you can have hope in the present in times of hardship, that's not 
uniquely Christian, right? You all think Christians are the only people that have ever thought of that? I mean, people from all walks of life intuitively know, man, when it's hard, it's good to remember where things have been good. I mean, this is the kind of advice that a Disney princess could give you. It's not special. Now, but the Bible gives us, though, Christians, what we see Peter giving in our text that we're going to study today, it's more than the counsel to think happy thoughts when you hurt. The Word of God wants us to remember that we have something well beyond what the rest of the world has because the Bible says those who have Jesus have salvation. We, we have Jesus. And friends, that's not because we're good. You get that, right? Ain't nobody ever gone to heaven because they were good. And if you are going to heaven, it's not because you're good. It's something else. So don't take credit for it. And don't think you're better than anybody else. But we, if we have Jesus, have hope for eternity. We live, even in the middle of hard circumstances, in a time that God would say that we live in a time of favor. And when we remember that we have been given favor and blessing from God, that helps us make it when the world around us looks like it's fallen apart. Now, if you're one of those note-taker type people, there'll be two main big points. There'll be a few sub-points in each if you want to write them down. But, and I, I think the best thing to call this is our time of favor. Because what you're going to find is that even though life can be hard, we live during a tremendously good time to be alive. First point, bear fruit as a Christian. Bear fruit, actually as a true Christian. You want to put the word true in there, that might help. Bear fruit as a true Christian. Verses 8 and 9 say, Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in order to get these verses, will you take a moment to think with me about the Apostle Thomas? Some of you are going, that's great. And some of you are going, I have no idea who you're talking about. That's okay. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples who walked around with Jesus for three and a half years before Jesus went to the cross. Thomas saw the miracles of Jesus. Thomas experienced the joy of the presence of God. He watched Jesus heal people and teach people and turn the world around him upside down. I mean, Jesus changed the world and Thomas saw it. And Thomas just knew Jesus is what the Bible calls the Messiah. He knew that Jesus is the one person God had been promising and promising from the beginning of human history he was going to send into the world to be the king. So it must have been a horrible thing that Thomas saw that last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, Thomas walked with Jesus through the last week. He saw the crowds cheer Jesus on the way into Jerusalem, and I bet he loved that. And Thomas had to love it because y'all remember that after Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem and in that week, he spent hours putting the uppity religious leaders in their place. And he showed them that the grace of God 
is for common, normal people, not the uber-religious professional. Aren't you glad you don't have to have a PhD to be a Christian? That's good, that's good stuff, right? And I'm sure Thomas loved it, man. The Passover meal that came on Thursday night, Jesus is so kind and so loving to his disciples, and this had to be one of the best nights ever. And then it all fell apart. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was arrested. The disciples ran away. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was tried. And Jesus was led out to be crucified. Was Thomas in that crowd? Did he see the bloodied, mangled, brutalized face of the Lord Jesus? Did Thomas hear the jeers and the taunts of the crowd that at the beginning of the week was saying, Hosanna, and at the end is screaming, crucify him and making fun of him? Did Thomas watch the nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet? Did he dare look up and watch Jesus die? Well, Thomas, along with the remaining disciples, he hid in the upper room, that the place where they had the Passover meal on Thursday. And the disciples were hiding and they were terrified. They just knew any moment temple guards or Roman soldiers were going to burst through the door and drag them all off to be killed. This was a bad weekend, folks. And then maybe worse is that feeling Thomas was having, not just the fear But wouldn't you wonder, did I somehow get it wrong? Thomas couldn't imagine how, but you got to wonder. I mean, Jesus really did the miracles Jesus claimed to do. Jesus healed people. Thomas saw it. How? Jesus taught with authority that no one else had ever taught with. How could Jesus die? Well, on Sunday, Jesus was crucified on Friday. On Sunday, Thomas went out. Maybe he had an errand to run. Maybe maybe he was rethinking everything. I don't know. But when Thomas came back to the upper room to be with the disciples, the ten disciples who were left had something amazing to tell him. They said Jesus was alive. They said they had seen Jesus. But Thomas couldn't buy it. Thomas said, look guys, if I don't see Jesus with my own two eyes, if I don't touch Jesus with my own hand, I'm not willing to believe you that Jesus is really back from the dead. John chapter 20, verses 26 to 29 reads, Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus showed Thomas. I really did come back from the dead, Thomas. And Thomas, the most scientific-minded of the bunch, if I can't see it, it must not be true. Jesus said, fine, look and see. By the way, do you guys know any people that say if they can't see it, they won't believe it? Best thing to do there is to ask them to close their eyes and then take their wallet. (laughs) If they couldn't see it, right, must not be true. Sorry. That wasn't actually supposed to be that funny. Uh, Thomas then tells them, Jesus tells Thomas something really fascinating. Really important to you and me today. Jesus said to Thomas, it's good that you believe because you saw me. But then Jesus tells Thomas, and John writes it down for you and me to read, even more blessed than Thomas. And by the way, how blessed do you think it was for Thomas, the guy who was doubting and fearful for Jesus to say, come on, touch my hand. That sounds blessed, right? Wouldn't you love Jesus to do that for you? Jesus said, the people are more blessed who never see me with their eyes and still believe. Look at verse 8 of 1 Peter 1. Two times, Peter says that the Christians who he's writing to have not seen Jesus, though you have not seen him. And though you do not now see him. And the Lord, I think, is inspiring Peter to bring to your mind and my mind the blessing that Jesus mentioned to Thomas. The Christians that, 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 that don't have the privilege of walking the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. The Christians that, that didn't have the privilege of walking the backcountry roads of Galilee with Jesus. Just because you didn't lay eyes on Jesus, that doesn't make you a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. No, in fact, if you by the grace of God have been brought by God to be a genuine follower of Jesus, even though your eyes never saw Jesus, you are greatly blessed by God. Because it's harder to believe in someone or something you can't see. But that kind of faith is a true treasure from God. Well, when, when Peter wrote to these scattered exiles, the Gentile believers in, in really the, the letters written to people in Turkey. By the way, I apologize to Joe. I forgot there were cities in the passage he had to read this morning. Not nice to anybody to do that to them. Uh, <laughs> Peter knew he was writing to Christians. He knew that the people he was writing to were going to be persecuted, ridiculed, put down because they're Christians. But Peter knew their faith was going to hold. Peter expressed confidence that these people, they had been really, really saved by God and they would be kept by God and they would experience the glory of God when Jesus came back. And Peter wanted to give these Christians hope so that they could battle through the sufferings and the trials that we all face, whether they're persecutions, whether there's somebody putting you down because of how you look, because of what you have, because of what you don't have. Peter said, look, you can stand no matter what. I believe you guys can do it because God's going to give you what you need. And in these two verses that we study, 
Peter then says, you guys are blessed. You haven't seen Jesus, but you're blessed. And then he lists in these two verses multiple things that I think the best word I can say is fruits. Signs of being a genuine Christian. Multiple results of being a genuine Christian. He praises these believers, says, good job, guys, because he believes you guys are real Christians. And he shows us both the benefits and the fruit that salvation, if it's real, has to show. So we get words of comfort, and the words of comfort give us goals to shoot for in the Word of God, in the Spirit of God, with the people of God. So let's take a look here at what Peter says about the faith of the Christians that were back then, and then let's see what's true of them and see what ought to be true of me and you too. These are the results of being genuine Christians. I'll give you four of them, okay? First result of being a genuine Christian, first fruit you're supposed to bear, is love. Doesn't that just sound sappy and sweet? He says, though you have not seen him, what? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Hope that's in your Bibles, by the way. Otherwise, we have a whole other conversation we need to have. Peter says... Look, you want to know what a test is of trusting Jesus? What do you you think Peter would say the test of really following Jesus is? How did Jesus talk to Peter right after Peter had failed? Three times. Three times Jesus stood before Peter in John 21 and said, Do you love me? And then Jesus called Peter, feed my sheep. Loving Jesus is something that is to be part of the life of any true Christian. Love for God, love for others, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Love is something God commands us time and time again. Now, what is love? In human relationships, love is a commitment to the good of another person such that you will do all you can to do them good, even if it costs you greatly. Does that sound fair to you? Love is a commitment to the good of another person, such that you will do everything you can to do them good, even if it costs you greatly. So Jesus showed his love for us when he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Husbands love their wives when they lay down their lives for them. Uh, Parents love their children when they take care of them or even when they discipline them, even though it's not convenient for the parent to do because we're looking for the good of the child. Now, if that's the definition of love, though, it kind of gets weird when we talk about loving God because you and I cannot do God Good. Why not? God already is the highest possible good. There's not an ounce of good you can add to God to make God better, right? If you can do anything to make God better, you're not talking about God. God is the highest possible good. But when we love God, when, when we love God, one thing is for sure we have affection for the Lord. We care about the things of God. And we have gratitude for the grace that God has given us. 
and we desire to live and to speak so as to shine the light of glory on the Lord. We live to show the world around us the greatness and glory of God. Loving God must include something about your life that says, I'm going to let the universe around me see God is really, really, really good. The second fruit, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So it may seem strange for me to say this, but you know what one genuine result of faith is? Faith. Faith is a genuine result of faith. That's redundant. Peter is commending these Christians because they believe in Jesus. But the verb is a very present tense verb here. He, he says, if you guys believe, he's not saying it's good that a long time ago you believed in Jesus. Have you guys ever been to a church where what they talk to you about most of all is did you ever sometime in your past believe in Jesus? That doesn't help. Peter's not saying, though you did not see him, you believed in him. He says, though you never have seen him, though you don't see him now, you still believe. Because belief in the risen Lord Jesus, it's not a one-time thing that you do in the past. Trusting in the Savior so as to be saved is an ongoing belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, for some of you, and I could take a poll, and some of you would answer this this way, some of you would have a very hard time defining the moment when you came to faith in Christ. Is that true for some of you? Some of you would say, okay, I know what happened, but I can't say when. For many Christians, belief in Jesus felt like a process. Here's the good thing to know, and I hope this comforts you. Your salvation and mine do not depend on having the date of your conversion nailed down. Aren't you glad about that? But here's what matters greatly. Listen, if you want to know difference in do I, am I, do I belong to God or do I not belong to God, listen. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus now? Yes. There you go. Amen. Do you believe the Son of God came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross to be the payment for your wrongs? That's an important question. Do you believe that on the third day, Jesus, after dying, rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb, and is alive right now today? Yeah. See, that, believing in Jesus like that, is the continuing fruit of believing in Jesus for real. And even if you don't have the date of your conversion written down in the back of your Bible somewhere, it doesn't matter. Do you believe now is the question. Because genuinely trusting Jesus leads to staying with Jesus and believing in all those things that are true of him. Third result of genuine Christianity, joy in the glory of God. Joy in the glory of God. Says and rejoice. You you guys you guys you haven't seen him, but you, you you love him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So think about this: these these Christians that Peter's writing the letter to, they're going through hard time. They are not popular in their culture, even in the face of possibly being persecuted, beaten up. 
arrested, killed for their faith, these Christians of the first century had lives that were marked by joy. Now, how can that be? How can, how can there be, bless you multiple times, how can, they, how, can that, how can it be that they had joy while they were being persecuted? Because that sounds messed up, right? Here's something you need to remember. Joy, even in English, joy is bigger than happiness. Have you guys ever had someone tell you that before? The word happy, if you were to write it down, the first three letters, H-A-P, hap, right? That, that's the same root as the word happen. Have you ever thought that happy and happen come from the same word in our language? What does that mean? Happy, to be happy, is based on if you like what happens to you. As long as the things that are happening are good, I'm able to be happy. Now, by the way, if that's your standard for life, how good is life going to be? If everything is good and I, so I can be happy, but if it's not good, I can't be happy, how happy are you always going to be? Anybody want to say that everything that's happened to you this week was something that made you smile? I could tell you some stories. See, what happens to you, your circumstances is what covers whether you're happy or not. Joy is something deep and abiding deep down. True Christian joy is found not in our outer circumstances, but in the inner state of a heart that has been transformed and satisfied by the Lord God who made us. Joy is an attitude that you have of celebration or exaltation. Joy is a confident expectation of good that overrides whatever your present circumstances are. Have you ever met somebody who you look at them and you say, they ought to be miserable and they still are looking forward with a positive attitude? There's joy in that. Joy is steady. Happiness ebbs and flows. Of course, John Piper, you got to quote him if you're talking about joy, says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. That works. And the joy that Peter here describes, he says it's inexpressible. He says, literally, the joy that a real believer has is of such a quality that you don't even have the right words to explain it. So if you've got a Christian friend that you're saying, I don't understand you. I can't understand how you can have this otherworldly outlook or this otherworldly joy in you. The reason they can't explain it to you is because they're not supposed to be able to. It is inexpressible. It is hard to understand unless you experience it. It is indescribable what Christians get because of Jesus. And the joy that we get to experience, it says, is full of glory. Glory, the Greek word doxa, doxa. Uh, you guys know a word that, that, that you think of when you hear that word, right? Yep. Doxology, that song we sing at the end that talks about praising God and keeps saying praise God all these ways. Well, the, the glory there is from that. It's from the weightiness, the praiseworthiness of God, the glory of God. And so the joy that we have somehow is all tied to how worthy of praise God is, and that somehow fills our souls with joy. 
So if you tie all three of those items together in this part, right, you're going you're gonna to find the pattern of soul satisfaction in the worship of the Lord, and that's at the core of our human purpose. The Westminster Catechism says that our chief end, the, the, the real purpose, every human being exists. The reason you get to have a body and breathe, God says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what the, that's, that was the conclusion of the, of the guys at Westminster. Your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Again, quoting John Piper, he tells Christians, God is most glorified in man when man is most satisfied in God. And he adds the counter that man is most satisfied in God when God is most glorified in man. You want soul satisfaction? Seek the glory of God. That's what he's telling us. We were created by God for God. You exist as, a, as someone who is supposed to show that God is glorious. You and I exist as evidences. We're like trophies that prove the greatness of God. And when you and I do things that glorify the Lord, the Lord will bring joy to our souls as he satisfies them with his goodness. Psalm 63, verses 4 and 5. Those who did Bible study on Sunday night last week know this one already, right? David writes, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Amen. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. In that psalm, David said, I'm going to praise God as long as I got breath in my lungs, which is what you created to do. In turn, David says God has satisfied his soul because he praised God as, as if you ate the best meal you've ever eaten. And that praising God and experiencing God's glory leads David to do more praising of God. Now, you see the cycle? David praises God. God satisfies David's soul. Because David's soul is satisfied, David praises God. So God satisfies David's soul, which leads to David doing more praising of God. That is to be the Christian life. Verse 9 in 1 Peter 1 then gives us the final fruit that I'll give you this morning of being a true Christian in this section. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the end, the final goal of any Christian's faith, the thing that you and I get ultimately is the salvation of our souls. This is the outcome that follows all that love, belief, rejoicing, glory. At the end of it all, real believers find out that the Lord God has rescued our very souls. Now, this is common sense, but stay with me. If there is a salvation to be had, that indicates that there is a danger from which you must be saved. Right? Think about it. If you're laying on the beach and somebody comes over and touches you and says, I saved you! I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in danger. Leave me alone. If you're in the water struggling and someone grabs you and pulls you out, then what are you? Saved. If you have salvation, that means you are in danger. Here's the truth. 
You and I, friends, are all sinful against God. Every one of us, not one person in this room is not a sinner. Some of us, like me, some of us are better at it. Some of y'all never caught up. I'm not supposed to say that stuff, am I? But here's the thing. As sinners, we have earned the fury and wrath of God for rebelling against God. The just punishment for sinning against God, and it doesn't matter whether you're a big sinner or a little sinner, a good sinner or a bad sinner, the judgment we earn is eternal hell. Why do people go to hell? Because they fought against God by doing what God disapproves. That's what we need to be saved from. But for those who trust in Jesus, who turn to Jesus, who let go of their own lives and say, Jesus, I am yours. I follow you. You are now the master of my life. For those people, there is at the end of that kind of faith, salvation. Instead of your soul being lost forever in judgment, you find forgiveness and mercy and love and eternal life and forever heaven in the glorious presence of God. That's what genuine faith brings. Now, okay, that's all really good Bible doctrinal stuff, right? You got four things to write down. It feels like we've really accomplished something. But what in the world are we modern people supposed to take from this? Peter looked at a first century church, a suffering group of believers, and he commended them for all these fruits of their salvation. Good job, guys. And you and I need to be encouraged to know that those things are part of the Christian life. Don't those all sound like good things, by the way? Love, belief, joy, glory, salvation. Are there any of those you don't want? Well, at the same time, though, when you look at those things, it's got to make us assess our lives. How many of you, if you're being honest, you hear that these are the marks of Christianity and you're going, oh, dear I don't know. I don't know if I got all those. Do we experience all of these things? And how much do we experience them? What do you do if you don't experience all of those fruits of salvation in the way that you think you ought to? You ever do that, by the way, not experience them the way you think you should? Let me say this to you first. No Christian is going to experience all of those aspects of the faith at all times with utter perfection. There is such a thing as the dark night of the soul. Even if you know Jesus, there is such a thing as genuine pain, genuine sorrow, genuine hurt in the Christian life. And in the life of a believer, there may be times where you doubt. There may be times when you're discouraged. I I, I don't want to break it to any of you new Christians too harshly. There might even be times where you still sin. Can you believe it? Is anybody shocked by that, that that there may still be sin? Do not assume that if your love is not perfect, If your joy is not perfect, if your experience of glory is not perfect, if your faith is not unshakable, 
that you are lost. You can't assume that for sure. But if you don't have those fruits in perfection, what should that tell you? There's something wrong. There's something that I should be seeking in God. I should be, I should be seeking to have each of these fruits better. So what was the first of the four fruits? Okay, love. We should be seeking to, 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 to ramp that up. The second one was what? Joy. Good. We had, we had love. We had belief. We have joy in the glory of God and salvation. For those of you who are bad note takers. What do you do if your belief is wavering? What do you do? Go back and read the word of God. And talk about the things of the faith with other believers who are believing strongly. And add to the foundation of your belief. Let the word of God richly dwell in your heart and keep the glory of Jesus Christ in front of your eyes. If your faith is shaking, get around Christians and talk about the things of the faith. Get in there. Get the word of God open in front of you. Remember the things that you've seen that remind you that Jesus is real. What if your love is waning? You ever have moments where you don't love as much as you think you ought to the Lord? Yeah? What do you do? Maybe one trick would be look to, the, look to salvation itself. Look to the word of God and let it remind you of the grace that Jesus Christ has brought to our lives. Look to the promises that God has given to every believer. Because what did God say he was going to give us instead of the judgment we deserve? We deserve hell, and God says, I'm going to give you eternal life, eternal joy, eternal hope in my presence. That'll make you love God more. What if you're not having joy? What if you're not rejoicing in the glory of God? The answer is seek the glory of God. Tell God, God, I want to see your glory. I'm getting weak here. I need to see your goodness. I need to see your glory. And then, by the way, do things in your life that bring and give and shine glory on God. Oh, how do you do that? You obey his word. You take part in the spiritual disciplines, right? What, what, What do you do to glorify God? Read the Bible. For real, not just as a chore. Pray. For real, not just as a chore. Share the gospel. Right? That's a good one. Uh, Worship. Listen. If you are a Christian and you're wrestling to to see, to know the glory of God, and you keep yourself from meeting together with the people of God to worship God, you are costing yourself the opportunity to do what God wants you to do. You hurt yourself when you absent yourself from the body of Christ. Fellowship with other believers. Fasting. So many things like that can bring glory to God. Every time you obey God for God's sake, you glorify God. That's good. As you shape your life to display the glory of God... The result that God promises is that you will find joy in your life as you do more that glorifies God. As your life does what God shaped your life to do, joy, steadfast, sustaining joy, 
can keep you going even when happiness is utterly impossible. And I'm going to guess that some of you have been through some circumstances where happiness couldn't happen, but joy can. But let me also give you this warning. No, none of us are all going to have all the characteristics constantly and perfectly. But what if you don't have them at all? If you have no love for God at all, you don't care about God, you don't care a bit about Him, you don't care about His Word, you don't care about His rules, you don't care about His stuff. If you have no joy in Christ, if you have no desire to praise, if you have no interest in the Word or the promises of God, And if that lack of interest persists, if it sticks with you, you cannot call yourself a believer. You have to assume at that point that you are dead in your sins, under the wrath of God, and in need of salvation. But to you I say, and again, please listen. If you say, I don't have that stuff, listen to me. Cry out to God. For salvation. Believe in Jesus. Let go of your life and surrender it to Jesus. Turn away from your sins. This is a desperate situation. You have no hope to make it to God on your own. Not one of us can get to God on our own. So instead, surrender to Jesus and trust in Jesus and rest in his finished work. And God promises that all who believe in Jesus and come to him for in, in repentance, they'll be saved. But if you continue to ignore God and rebel against God, I don't care if you're a good person. You continue to ignore God and fight against God and other things, you'll be lost. It's that simple. Now, as we saw, Peter believed that the people to whom he was writing, they had true salvation. They believe. They love Jesus. They have joy. They experience his glory. They have salvation. And then Peter goes forward and says, it's not just that the fruit is here in your life, but Peter also wants them to know that they live in a time of amazing favor from God, even as they live in a world that's going to persecute them. He says, you guys live in a good time. How in the world? Point number two, the point is going to be, thank God that you live in a time of great favor. By the way, if I just said that to you right now, and again, you Americans looking at how our world looks, would you say, yes, we do live in a time of great favor? doesn't always feel that way, does it? Do you think the first century Christians thought, yes, this is wonderful? Probably not. Look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
So a Christian who's facing hardships, a Christian facing persecution, a Christian being ridiculed in their land, a Christian opposed by the culture, opposed by their government, that kind of Christian might believe they live in an unfortunate time. You ever feel like we live in an unfortunate time? (laughs) Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, right? When I was growing up, I can tell you that I heard older Christians all the time tell me about the good old days. Remember that? You'll ever hear people talk about how good it used to be? Oh, man, it would be great if we could just go back to the era of my childhood, back back when we lived in a moral nation. Now, let's, let's be nice. There were some things about the 1950s that were good, right? I mean, abortion was not rampant in our land in the 1950s. Neither was internet porn something they had thought of yet. But the nation, the nation wasn't holy, was it? In the 1950s, racism abounded. Schools, public places, drinking fountains were segregated. That's evil. And many of the forms of evil and abuse that we see today, they were still happening in the 50s. They just were hidden behind walls of silence. No, it would not be better to go back in time to a different era for us. Nor would it have been good for the people who who Peter was writing to. It wouldn't have been better for them to go back in time. I'm sure some of those people thought, man, this is the worst time ever to live. It's 62, 63, 64 AD, and Nero's on the throne, and this is bad. I would rather live in any other time but this. And they're going to suffer, and it's going to make them really feel like this is the worst time ever to live. But God inspired Peter to remind first century Christians that they were living in a great age of favor from the Lord. And in what Peter says to them, you and I have to understand, so too are we. Verses 10 and 11, Peter says that the prophets of the Old Testament searched the scriptures diligently to understand what God was saying when he told the prophets truths of the salvation to come. Who are the prophets? Name me some prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses. Daniel, right? Okay, those guys. We love those guys, right? Okay, every one of those guys had God tell them stuff about himself and his plan. They all had God reveal to them things about what he was going to do to bring about salvation. And you know what else? I mean, those guys were all saved by God, right? We believe all those guys are going to be in heaven by grace through faith. But did any one of the four men we just named, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Did any of them really get it? Did they really understand the plan of God in Jesus Christ? As much as you do? Do you understand more than they did? I think you do. How hard would it have been to get everything? Moses Moses is writing in Genesis about the creation. And he writes about the fall of man. And Moses writes down for us the thing that God said to the serpent, right? Someone's going to come, descended from this woman, and she is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. And we now know that that is a promise that God made of someone to come into the world who's going to beat the devil and bring salvation to the people of God. 
Do you think Moses understood exactly what that was all happening? No way. He didn't get it. He wanted to. He got some of it. He got a glimpse. But he didn't get it. How about Daniel? Daniel saw the rise and fall of kingdoms in all that churning of humanity, empire after empire. God would preserve his people, bring them through, and bring his promised king into the world. But God never let Daniel understand everything he was doing. In fact, at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel says, I really wanted to understand it. And an angel said, oh, you go just seal this book up. This is for later. Jeremiah writes about the new covenant that God's going to make with his people. It's going to be a covenant that fulfills the old covenant, but it's also going to be a covenant that is somehow different than the old covenant. And in the new covenant, everyone who's part of the new covenant is going to know God from the least to the greatest. They're going to have the word of God written on their hearts. Jeremiah had no way of understanding exactly how that was all going to come about. Or how about, you all mentioned Isaiah. We love Isaiah as a prophet. Isaiah predicts a king's going to come to rule the world, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. You guys know that passage, right? But then Isaiah, writing about the same guy, writes chapters 52 and 53. And we see that there's a servant coming from God who is going to die a brutal death as he pays for the sins of other people. And yet at the end of Isaiah 53, that servant appears to be alive and is seeing the fruit of his work in a people of his own. What did Peter tell us in verse 11? Peter said he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory. But guys, there's no way Isaiah fully understood the details of what was to come. The prophets wanted to understand. God gave them glimpses of what was to come. They saw the shadow of what was to come. But they did not get the full and complete picture. They were still saved by God's grace through faith. They still trusted God and found life. But they didn't know anything like what God's allowed us to grasp. Now, by the way, interesting side point for you guys who like interesting side points. Notice who... who was telling the prophets what was to come. Did you see that? Look at verse 11 again. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of, you see it? The spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and subsequent glories. All scripture is inspired by God, right? And we know that the Holy Spirit of God inspired the prophets. See 2 Peter chapter 1 for that. But here, just to keep your theology of the Trinity going, Peter tells us that it was the Spirit of Christ who inspired the prophets. Now we know from good doctrinal statements that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets to write the revelation of God. Later in verse 12, we're going to see the very same Spirit who inspired the prophets preaching to the apostles, just called the Spirit of God. So obviously, Peter sees that God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, this is the one God, three persons as one single God, and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. So Peter, I just, just want you to see that right here in the 60s AD, 
not, not way, way past, you know, not, not, not at the Council of Nicaea or Chalcedon or anything else, right here in the or, or Constantinople is what I was thinking of. Peter says, gives us these beautiful pictures of gorgeous Trinity doctrine. This is not a fourth century manifestation. This is happening right at the early church. Okay, verse 12 then says to us, it was revealed to them that the, 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 it was revealed to the prophets they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things from which angel, to which, into which angels long to look. So the prophets of the Old Testament served not themselves, not even their own generation primarily, but they served those of us who live on this side of the cross. You guys realize it's different to live on this side of the cross than that side of the cross, right? The promises, the promises of God, the promises that the prophets were like, man, this is awesome. This is great. I wish I understood it more. Those are the promises that you and I get to understand and personally experience. Not only, by the way, do we benefit from the prophets, we benefit from the labor of the apostles. Guys like Peter and Paul and Matthew and John and all the rest, they spoke the things that God let them speak and wrote the things that God let them write so that other people who, could, who would come, other people who do not get to see Jesus face to face, could still believe and have salvation. They preached, they wrote, they suffered, they died so people like you and me could grasp the truth of the salvation that God had been promising from the beginning. And who else sees us as favored by God? The Old Testament prophets did. The New Testament apostles did. You know who else thinks we are really blessed by God? Peter says that the angels of God stoop down because they want to get a real close look at what God has given us. Angels have never been forgiven by God. Angels are not created in the image of God the way you and I are. Angels wish they could understand what you and I get to experience. Peter, inspired by God, is telling you and me that we are more blessed than angels. So Christians get this. All the Old Testament prophets and all the Old Testament saints wished they could understand what God was up to. All the New Testament apostles worked to bring to us the truth that we get to understand. All the angels of God want to comprehend the joy of forgiveness that you and I get to experience. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, has brought that truth to us, the church, to remind us that we live in a highly honored state even in a world that fills our lives with hardship and persecution. No, none of us wants to face a hard world. But Peter tells us, inspired by God, that our salvation will have definite results and our salvation shows that we live in an era of favor greater than any other era of favor in history. We haven't seen Jesus with our own two eyes, that's true. But we love him. We believe in him. 
We rejoice in him. We experience his glory. We understand what the prophets saw in hints, what the apostles died to declare, what the angels longed to understand. But we, the people of God, are favored because we get to know and love and serve Jesus. And the ability to know and love and serve Jesus is worth more than any single hardship you could ever, ever face. Let's pray together. Lord God.